Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'd like to welcome you to, on behalf of the Asia Center and the co-sponsors of this uh, event, including the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies, the Reichauer Institute of Japanese Studies, and the Program on U.S.-Japan Relations at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs, to this very special event on behalf of Professor Ezra Vogel's new book, China and Japan, Facing History. Thank you all very much for coming. We knew, I think, that this would be a, a well-attended event, and it looks to be an overflowing uh, crowd this evening. Um, my name is James Robson. I'm the new uh, Victor and William Fung Director of the Asia Center and also a professor in the Department of East Asian Languages and Civilizations. And I'd like to just briefly say how delighted we are to have this event as the first large Asia Center co-sponsored event of the year and my first event as the new director, since it's so fitting that it's centered on Professor Ezra Vogel. Ezra Vogel, as you know, was the first director of the Asia Center, which he inaugurated in 1997. And I can see there are also some uh, former directors and uh, acting directors in the audience uh, tonight, this evening, uh, or this evening as well. And uh, this, uh, Professor Vogel's work, as you all know, and his su substantial body of scholarship embodies many of the key features that the Asia Center aims to foster, which is precisely the issues of transnational and transregional work. As you know, the new book, which will be the topic of discussion this evening, goes all the way back to connections between China and Japan in the seventh century, and it carries on up to the present day. So now, uh, my only role this evening is to introduce the introducer. So I'd like to now uh, introduce Professor Elizabeth Perry, the Henry Rosofsky Professor of Government and the, also the director of the Harvard Yenjing Institute, who will introduce and also moderate uh, the event this evening. But Thank you all very much for coming. Very much look forward to this evening's event. Thank you very much, James. It's a genuine pleasure and privilege to be part of uh, today's event, a book talk by America's preeminent scholar of East Asia, Professor Ezra Vogel. Professor Vogel, as you know, is the Henry Ford Professor of Social Sciences Emeritus here at Harvard and the author of numerous books, best-selling books, agenda-setting books <laughs> on both China and Japan. On the Japan side, uh, we have back from 1963, I believe it was, Japan's New Middle Class, and then much more controversially in 1970. Japan as number one, lessons for America. I was very interested when I was in China just a couple months ago seeing that the Chinese translation of Japan as number one was featured very prominently uh, in several bookstores in Shanghai. Um, maybe you can explain that to us later on. It was a surprise to me. On the China side, uh, Ezra has also written uh, very important books, Canton Under Communism in 1969, One Step Ahead in China that looked at the province of Guadalajara and its role in the new post-Mao reforms, published in 1989. Um, more famously, perhaps, Deng Xiaoping and the Transformation of China, which came out in 2011. And today, as James mentioned, um, Ezra will be introducing his new book from Harvard University Press, China and Japan, Facing History. It's appropriate, I think, that the event today, which is focused on Sino-Japanese relations, 
is being held here in the Thai Auditorium. But right outside the Thai Auditorium, we have the Japan Friends of uh, Harvard Concourse. And I do want to let you all know that right after uh, we meet here in the Thai Auditorium, you are all welcome to a reception in the uh, uh, friends, uh, Japan friends of Harvard Concourse right outside, where if there's still any books left for purchase, you're welcome to do that uh, there. We do hope you'll stay uh, to join us for the reception right outside afterwards. As um, Professor Robeson noted, Ezra was the founding director of the Asia Center here at Harvard. He served also as director for a couple of terms of the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies and uh, also the program on US-Japan relations. Although Ezra retired officially from Harvard almost 20 years ago now, in the year 2000, he has continued to be incredibly active and engaged uh, <laughs> since then. Uh, still not only a member, but a leader of our community, both here at Harvard and far beyond, both intellectually and administratively. Uh, he's kept extremely busy uh, writing new books, helping to organize the public intellectuals program at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, coordinating a weekly seminar at the Fairbank Center on critical issues facing China, lecturing to um, both academic and public audiences all around the world. Professor Vogel will focus today on the question of how Japan and China have interacted with each other, not only politically, militarily, but also culturally. And particularly, I think, how they've learned from each other since the seventh century transmission of Buddhism, um, right down to much more recent cultural exchange and imitation. Let me mention um, just one such cultural practice, one that Ezra doesn't focus on in his book, but has intrigued me for a long time. Uh, in 1950, Japan came up with the idea of uh, what it calls ningen kokuho, living national treasures. And these individuals are certified practitioners of critically important Japanese cultural traditions, kabuki, bunnaku, and so on, that are deemed to deserve public recognition and uh, protection. In much more recent times, just the last few years, both Taiwan and the PRC have authorized their ministries of culture to follow the Japanese example by designating recognized masters of Chinese arts, calligraphy, uh, Beijing opera, and so on, as renjian uh, guobao, or also living national treasures. Now, I mentioned this particular bit of mutual learning because whether we know him as Ezra Vogel or whether we know him as um, Fu Gao Yi, he is truly an American living national treasure. <laughs> He practices the art of East Asian studies um, like none of the rest of us. He remains at the very 
top of his game, and he demonstrates to all of us, whether we're political scientists or sociologists or historians, whether we work primarily on China or on Japan, how to practice the art of East Asian studies at the very highest level. So it's my great uh, privilege and pleasure to turn the proceedings over to Ezra. I think in the middle of his talk, he will also introduce uh, a couple of his colleagues who worked with him on the latest book, and they will make some comments of their own as well. But he's asked to introduce them himself. So Ezra. Uh, is it They say in Chinese guojiang, I mean, you've overpraised me. And um, what I uh, feel is that none of this would be possible without this community. And I think it's the intellectual community around Harvard. I didn't realize how lucky I was to be here and take part of that when I got started. But I couldn't have done all the research without the stimulation of colleagues, without the cooperation of uh, so many people, and without the direct help, uh, particularly uh, when it comes to this book. Uh, I received help from so many people. I hesitate to mention a few because I will be leaving out so many others, but some of I think deserve special. On the China side, um, I want to uh, particularly thank um, Paul Cohen, uh, who's here, and Mike Zoni, uh, who's here. Uh, on the Japan side, I want to particularly thank Annie Gordon uh, and uh, Susan Farr. Uh, and uh, on the Korean side, I want to thank uh, Carter Eckert. Uh, and uh, I want to thank uh, my wife, who's uh, born, Charlotte Eichels, uh, who born the book, uh, and uh, all the uh, things I've done working on that from the beginning uh, to the end. Um, and I want to thank Kathleen McDermott from the Harvard Press, who ushered the book uh, through the press uh, at the the, uh, the the one on Deng Xiaoping, and also this uh, through the press, and saw that it met uh, all the uh, stages and got through everything smoothly. Uh, I want to also tell how lucky I am to have colleagues like Liz, and to have. Um, collaborators like uh, Paula Heron and, and Rick Dyke. Uh, I got into this uh, book uh, in, after I finished Deng Xiaoping, I was finished writing in about 2010. And at that time, the Chinese-Japanese relations were really at their low. And uh, I felt that uh, I wanted to contribute to them. As somebody who was known in both countries, I felt that maybe a, a bystander, you know, the Chinese have the uh, the person stands outside can sometimes see things more clearly, not always, but uh, I would try. And that I thought maybe an outsider who liked both countries, who had good friends in both countries, who wanted both countries to succeed, uh, might be able to tell a story in a way that might be helpful to those in the, in the two countries who wanted to try to improve relations. And that was the motivation for getting into it. The Chinese said that uh, the Japanese got to study history. And I decided that in order to write this book, I had to go into history. Uh, I think my colleagues know very well that I'm not a historian. I have no claims to be a historian. I don't read uh, early Chinese or Japanese texts. Uh, but uh, I felt I had to learn about history. And so I relied on many other people, like Josh Fogel, who spent a couple of years here, who has done so much to introduce uh, Japanese studies of China uh, into the Western literature, and so many scholars had written really good monographs. Andrew, Ezra. Mike. 
Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, my wife has always looked after me very well. <laughs> he was thanking you, Charlotte. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I decided I would try to at least learn enough about history, and I would try to connect the dots. I, I think one of the things that I was taught as a sociologist uh, under Talcott Parsons was to try to see the big picture, try to see how things fit together. And that's, in a way, what I've tried to do uh, in this uh, study. And uh, Paula Harrell, who uh, joined me, has done, uh, I think, the best research of anybody I know on this period when the Chinese were learning uh, from Japan. And Rick Dyke, who has got his PhD with me in 1975, has been in Japan most of the time since that time. Uh, he, he happened to have jobs making money and running companies, but he was really a scholar at heart, and he's remained a scholar at heart, and has worked so hard uh, on this study. And I've learned from both of them as uh, part of this study. Now, what I thought I'd do in this brief time today is, uh, I, since I can't cover everything, is to cover three highlights when one country was really learning a tremendous amount uh, from each other. And the first period I wanted to talk about is the period from 600 to 838, when uh, Japan was learning from China. And the second period is the period uh, from 1895 to the end of the Sino-Japanese War up until the Second World War. And I will let the person I learned from uh, on that topic, Paula Harrell, uh, talk about that topic. And then as that topic end, uh, I want to uh, have Rick Dyke talk some about the transition to the next stage. <clears throat> and then I will talk about the, the uh, uh, third time when one country learned a lot from another, and that's when Deng Xiaoping came to power in 1978 and China again learned so much from Japan. Now to go back to this uh, first period, the reason I start in 600 to 838 is that that was the year when Japan sent the first mission to China to study. And 838 was the, the time of the last mission. They thought of sending missions at a later time, but 838 was the time of the last mission. And as I look at it in the broad sociological perspective, what the Japanese were trying to do during that time was establish a broader uh, administrative structure. <clears throat> Delmer Brown at the University of California had described this early period of rule before uh, Empress Suiko came to power in 593 uh, as one that was uh, run by clans. And the clans had kind of a connection. There were about 30 clans. And they had various relationship with each other. And it wasn't a large enough scale to really have a broad administrative structure. And uh, through Koreans who came to Japan and through some uh, Japanese who had heard about uh, China, they knew that in the city of Chang'an, that had just been unified uh, in 589 by the Empress of Sui uh, Dynasty Wendi, uh, had begun to establish a very large administrative structure and had all the aspects of a broad administrative structure uh, that would be useful in uh, Japan as they tried to establish the same same thing. The strongest uh, clan of these that wanted to stretch out, the Soga clan, uh, was taking that lead. 
And uh, when they went to Chang'an uh, in 600, uh, they found a city that was, some, some estimates, almost a million people, perhaps the biggest city in the world, the most cosmopolitan, uh, the Yellow River uh, ca uh, the, uh, capital of that uh, era, in that area, uh, that provided uh, leadership in all kinds of different direction. And so they began uh, sending uh, these uh, missions. Um, <clears throat> there are differences of uh, opinion as to whether Shotoku Taishi was even a real person. But uh, <clears throat> I think the general explanations that most historians rely on is that uh, Empress Suiko relied on her nephew Shotoku Taishi to carry out many of these uh, uh, projects of bringing uh, culture from China so that they could develop this administrative district. Uh, now, uh, one of the basic things they had to have at that time was a written language, because to cover a broader geographical area, you needed some kind of written word for communication and for precise directions that would cover an area that extended beyond uh, one little locality. And there are a few things that archaeologists have found where there are Chinese characters before that period of 600, <clears throat> but there was not very large language. And Professor Lurie of Columbia has traced how the language developed and how during this early period of the Suetang uh, in uh, China, and then after Empress uh, Suiko and Shoto Taishi, they standardized a, tried to standardize a language uh, that was a written language. So they brought in the written language uh, from China. They also decided they needed a capital location that was more stable. Until that time, they had had capitals that moved around depending on which clan was in charge. And whoever the clan, whichever clan was, used their locality as the capital and the center. But uh, in the late uh, 600s, uh, they decided that they wanted to have a stable capital. And so they set the capital uh, in Nara in uh, 710. And they laid out the capital on the basis of what they saw in Chang'an. It was the same north-south axis, uh, and with the uh, capital at the uh, top, uh, and then numbered streets along the sides. And then uh, when some of the people in the Nara period felt some of the monks uh, were getting too much control and they wanted to hold new capital, uh, they set up the Heian uh, dynasty, and uh, then uh, set the capital in Kyoto in, and finished in 794, which also was laid out exactly on the base of Changsha, uh, uh, Chang'an. <laughs> uh, those who, <laughs> the person working on the modern era, you know, confused the previous, uh, from Chang'an. And so in, in Kyoto, even today, you, they have the numbered uh, streets down, and you can still see the signs of the basic layout of that city, uh, which is based on uh, Chang'an. They also decided they needed some kind of legitimation for their government. And 
Buddhism, of course, it started in India, but it become essentially a Chinese religion. So from the Japanese point of view, it was a, a Chinese religion. And Buddhism, uh, linked to heaven, gave a kind of a natural legitimation. And the term uh, Tiandi, you know, the emperor, after all, was the link, linkage with heaven. And the Japanese, too, the Tenno, uh, was uh, linked with uh, heaven. And that provided kind of a natural overall linkage uh, with the uh, early uh, uh, Chinese <coughs> uh, c concepts and uh, provided a basis for the Japanese to provide that kind of perspective. They also introduced Confucianism, which provided a wonderful philosophy that underpinned the rule. Uh, the Confucianism, you serve your elder brother and you serve your lord, and it was a wonderful uh, philosophy to be introduced that helped reinforce the loyalty of the subjects to the nation. And they developed various codes in uh, uh, Japan that grew out of the Taiko codes and so forth. Uh, that set up rules for collecting taxes from a broader administrative area, uh, for hiring people uh, to serve in the army and serve in labor projects, uh, and uh, set up uh, rules that, again, also uh, were based on those they learned uh, from China. They also decided to write history, which would uh, provide uh, legitimation. And the Chinese uh, dynastic history uh, was adapted in Japan in the Kojiki and the Honshoki. And the Japanese, and one thing that was a little different in Japanese culture was that they gave more emphasis to heredity and continued to do so over the centuries than China. So when they uh, wrote their uh, long history, they traced it all the way back blood uh, to the descendant from heaven, from Jinnu Tenno. Uh, and, uh, but the idea of that kind of basic history which provide legitimation and that those who won the battles are the legitimate heirs, and that continued through the centuries. Uh, that came, in a way, from the idea of the, the dynastic histories uh, that came from uh, China. Uh, and uh, in terms of the arts, uh, they also picked up. They it wasn't so central to the administration, uh, but they picked up things like uh, some of the uh, koto and the old uh, Japanese uh, classic instruments are really instruments that came from uh, China. And of course, uh, literature, uh, and so many Japanese learned uh, literature uh, as it was uh, from uh, China. So in all these ways, uh, Japan learned its basic civilization, its basic culture uh, from China. <clears throat> and the amazing thing is what a small number of people did that. And each mission maybe had as much as three or four ships, 100 or 200 people at most on a ship. Uh, so several hundred people, uh, 15, 17 times that they sent missions. <clears throat> but they often left a monk uh, living in uh, Chang'an. And the monk, of course, was the intellectual of the day that, who provided understanding of what was going on. 
And if they stayed from one uh, time to the next, by the next time the delegation came and 15, 20 years later, the, monk, the monks who had stayed learned an awful lot about what was going on in Chang'an. So that enabled Japan to uh, absorb that culture in a very remarkable way. So the quick summary I would have of that learning from China was that it was very deep, it was on a small scale, but it was formative and set the basis for Japanese civilization that's continued even today and continues to have a very basic uh, impact. Now the next big stage of learning, there of course continued relations over the centuries in between this, but there was nothing comparable to one side learning that much from another until 1895. In 1895, suddenly uh, Chinese decided to begin to learn from Japan. Uh, and until that time, China had really looked, in, uh, looked so down on Japan. Uh, uh, one of our early PhD students under Fairbank, Noriko Kamachi, uh, described Huang Zunxian, uh, who was uh, first, first deputy in the mission, first Chinese mission in Tokyo in 1877. Couldn't even get his book published, probably the best book about Japan in Chinese. Couldn't get it published until after the war was over. Uh, so they knew almost nothing about it. One of the big reasons that Japan won the war is that they had so much better information. They had been collecting information and they had a better educational system. And so China was suddenly shocked uh, that Japan was suddenly way ahead of them. A few people in China, of course, had understood that before, but on a really big scale, they understood it. And at that time, in 1895, when they began thinking of learning from Japan, they didn't have a centralized administration like in its first period when Japan was learning from China and had a well-organized but very small scale. We had a really massive scale. And to my view, nobody in, in the West has done as much research on this period as Paula Harrell. And so for a description of that period, I turn to Paula. Paula, cheers. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. I'd like to offer a few additional perspectives on the sudden sharp turn for the better uh, in China-Japan relations after the war in 1895, so soon after, in fact, that the ink was barely dry on the peace treaty. Uh, China and Japan uh, had coexisted in a China-centered world for centuries. Uh, but when it, uh, and then you had Western intrusion, which forced uh, new choices on both. But when it came to basic cultural and institutional borrowing between them, it was always a one-way street, Japan learning from China. Now, for the first time ever, China turned to Japan for reasons, for lessons on how to run a country and develop its resources. Deng Xiaoping uh, could have been talking about 1895 when he told his Japanese hosts on a visit to Japan in 1978, he said, now the roles of teacher and student are reversed. Uh, this role reversal came from reassessments on both sides, as Ezra was mentioning. Top Chinese officials, some Chinese officials, took a new look at Japan, and they recognized that Japan's success was less about weapons acquisition, more about remaking institutions along Western lines, especially giving top priority to creating a nationwide system of public schools. 
In Japan, victory boosted public confidence. Uh, it also increased calls for a new Asia for the Asians foreign policy, less Euro-centered, more focused on strengthening ties with China as Japan's natural ally geographically and culturally. High-level talks in Wuhan in 1899 resulted in agreement to move ahead with three joint activities, study tours to Japan for Chinese officials, hiring Japanese advisors and teachers to work in China, and study in Japan for Chinese students. This sounds contemporary, and in fact, it was the first instance anywhere of a late developing country fashioning a sort of development assistance program for a later developing country. In pragmatic terms, this was viewed by both sides as a win-win uh, for China, fast-track modernization without exclusive reliance on Western advisors for Japan increasing its influence in Asia while strictly adhering to international norms. The visible change in the next few years was in the number of people-to-people -people contacts. Ezra was just talking about this. While Chinese civilization had made an enormous difference in Japanese society and cultural life over the past 13 centuries before this, actual travelers each way uh, were few, remarkably few. In some long periods, zero. By contrast, between 1900 and 1911, at least a 1,000 Chinese officials were sent to Japan on study tours to investigate schools from kindergarten to college, also to look at farms, factories, prisons, banks. Hundreds of Japanese advisors and teachers, uh, more than 500 by 1909, were hired on contract to work in various parts of the Chinese bureaucracy, advising on schools development, revising laws, organizing a police system, much as Western advisors worked in Japan in the 1870s and the 1880s, and with the same measurable results. In other words, for example, uh, in the all-important um, education, teacher education sector, study in Japan started small with 13 uh, Chinese youth sent to Tokyo in 1896. Then it ballooned to over 10,000 uh, in 1905 with the excitement that was felt Asia-wide over Japan's defeat of Russia. It's estimated that upwards of 50,000 Chinese students attended Japanese schools uh, from 1896 to 1937. Study in Japan was an eye-opener for Chinese students in school and beyond the classroom. Tokyo was a modern city with an active modern press offering far and away more extensive coverage of world events and public opinion than anything available in Qing China. They learned how the West viewed the rest, uh, where China stood in the global power rankings, and on the social Darwinist scale of fittest races, which was an intense discussion in the Meiji press and uh, student journals of the day. Uh, study in Japan turned students into nationalists. Some also became anti-Japanese and anti-Qing government. This points to the familiar part of the story, and that is how Japan returned students formed a core group within Sun Yat-sen's Revolutionary Party, and the ultimate irony that 
the young people expected to rescue the Qing regime as it transitioned to a constitutional monarchy under Japan's tutelage in the end contributed to its downfall. But not all students were revolutionaries, and many there were many sympathizers as well. Many of these people joined Japan, uh, China's modernizing bureaucracy, new army, staff of new schools and provincial assemblies. 90% of new recruits to bureaucratic positions from 1906 to 1911 were graduates of Japanese institutions. And these people, uh, and the revolutionaries as well, were in place after 1911. One telling example, I think, involves the uh, well-known legal expert, Ariga Nagao, who was hired by China's new Republican government in 1913 to help write a constitution. His staff of Chinese assistants in Beijing were all former students of his at Waseda University. Uh, and Riga's story highlights the fact that a number of Japanese advisors stayed on in China after 1912 as politics grew more chaotic on both sides. Some consulted on railway development, others on compiling new laws, uh, still others worked with Manchu separatists planning a separate uh, state in Manchuria. Rigo Nagao himself remained in Beijing after the outbreak uh, of war in Europe in 1914, that major event that was out of China and Japan's control but had such strong repercussions on each. He himself publicly opposed Japan's 21 demands in 1915. Japanese opinion on what to do about China was not uniform. And this was also true of Chinese students um, who, for various cost and political reasons, continued to enroll in Japanese schools, around three to 4,000 on average, up to the outbreak of war in 1937. Again, one can say that certainly um, study in Japan acted in myriad ways um, to alter the mindset of students at the individual level, many whose stories we know, Lu Xun, Guo Moreau, uh, Chen Duxiu, Shang Kai-shek, Li Dajiao, Zhou Enlai, many others, hundreds of others who were important then, but their stories are more or less forgotten now. So just to make a final point, um, as we here, even these days, uh, talk of Asia for the Asians once again. I think it's worth remembering that China and Japan's modern relationship was not always confrontational. China learning from Japan brought some measurable positive re results indicative of the potential for a mutually beneficial relationship. It was a matter of choice and commitment. Thank you so much, Paula. <clears throat> When that period was uh, ending, uh, there was one particular person who was not well known named Zhang Bai-li, who devised the strategy of how to defeat Japan. And uh, uh, Rick Dyke has been onto that. One of the things, as somebody who took a lot, spent a lot of time learning about psychology, I wanted to, to describe some of the people who made such an important difference. And in the end, I, I have biographies. I don't think of them as just reference notes. I think as, as fascinating people who played a key role between the two countries. But Zhang Bai-li was the one who developed a strategy of how to defeat Japan. Uh, 
was one of those students and played a very important role in the next stage. Uh, and unfortunately, there, were, well, there was one man, a Japanese, who understood the rising nationalism in uh, China and who do it, knew, knew, wrote about it and tried to stop it. He later became prime minister uh, in the post-war period, and that's uh, Ishibai Tanzan. So I've asked Rick to talk about those two people who played such a key role in the transition after this second period. Rick? And the other order I had was to keep it within five minutes. <laughs> uh, th this has been an amazing project to work on for me. And uh, Ezra just kept the drafts coming and coming and coming and, uh, and kept us all on, on our deadlines. Uh, you know, I'm sure you've all read the book and the pages just fly by. Uh, <laughs> so you, I'm sure you've read this on page 247. Uh, Ezra and I went back and forth, back and forth, and I'm not sure we completely nailed it, but Japan's tragedy was that it had the ability to mobilize military forces without a clear strategy or mission without a central authority capable of creating and implementing a strategy. Sounds like Iraq, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, the, uh, I'll get into Zhang Bailey, but I think, first of all, I, I belong to a study group in Japan that's mainly professors, uh, the Showa Juninenkai, which Showa Juninen is 1937. This group just gets together about five or six times a year for half a day and just talks about 1937. How did 1937 happen? If you go to a bookstore in Japan, you'll find shelves uh, about 1937. How did it happen? Now, the Chinese will say that it was aggressive invasion. And the Japanese will say, makikomarita. <laughs> we got tangled up. <laughs> And it's, uh, you know, it's someplace in between there. When, when Prime Minister Abe issued his 70th anniversary statement, uh, Kitoka Shinichi, who's become a very good friend and has helped us on this project, uh, had a press conference because he was the author of the statement. And somebody in the audience asked, uh, wasn't the problem the Tokyo war crime trials? Shouldn't we have had our own war crime trials? And Kitoka said, if we had had our own war crime trials, even now in 2015, we'd still be in the war crime trials. We could never make a decision about, about what happened. And it's really a murky period of history. Uh, but I'd like to first of all talk about Zhang Bailey. He's a fascinating person. I and want to get this through because I want to make sure I do it before the five minutes is up. And he's one of these fascinating people that uh, actually Paula's writing uh, was one of my first introductions. Matsumoto Shigenharu also write, wrote about uh, Zhang Bailey because he was one of his best friends when he was in Shanghai. So in Shanghai Jidai, he writes a lot about Zhang Bailey. Uh, Zhang Bailey uh, was born in uh, 1982, in 1882, sorry, <laughs> in, in, Zhejiang, in Zhejiang province, in a, in a very bookish family. Uh, and so he had a rather uh, Chinese classical scholarly education. 
His first newspaper that Ava read was about the Sino-Japanese War and the, and the defeat of the Qing by, by the Japanese. The newspaper came to him several months late, but that got him interested in sort of current events. He went to the antecedent of Zhejiang University, and then he took the opportunity to go to Japan and study in Japan. He linked up with Liang Qichao, who was a very consequential person, and he helped, uh, he helped edit Liang Qichao's uh, various periodicals that he was writing. He wrote articles himself. Uh, and the group that was around Liang Qichao, they, they, if you read Joseph Levinson, for, for example, he says they were coming to grips with the contraction of China, from China being their entire world to China being a nation within a world. They were also coming over with an expansion because they had their identity as being from Zhejiang province or Hunan province or whatever, and now they were going to try to get an identity as Chinese. He decided, even though he had this classical education, to go into the military which was kind of strange. His, his family was against it, Liang Qichao was against it, but he studied, he studied very hard, and he got into the uh, Shikangako, which is the premier uh, military academy. He graduated first in his class. The Meiji Emperor would come to the commencement and give a ceremonial sword to the graduate, and imagine his surprise when it's not a Japanese, it's a Chinese. They thought they would give the sword then another sword to the second in the class. It turned out that that was also a Chinese. <laughs> he was in the 16th class. It was an amazing class. Uh, Itagaki Seijiro, who was one of the co-conspirators of Manchuria, was in the class. Okamura Yachiro, who was later to command the Chinese, the Japanese army in China. Nagata Tetsuzan was in it. I don't know how many of you know about Nagata Tetsuzan. Nagata Tetsuzan was uh, trying to reform the army. The army had sort of gotten out of control in many ways. Uh, and Nagata Tetsuzan was trying to reform the army in 1935 when a lieutenant came in and slaughtered him. Uh, Zhang Baili actually went, went to Japan to meet Nagata Tetsuzan shortly before uh, he was assassinated and got an earful about the problems with the, with, the, uh, with the Japanese army. Zhang Qichao took a group of sort of Chinese opinion leaders to Europe after the Great War. Here are these Chinese who had studied the Enlightenment, believed that prog progress will always be the case. They go to Europe and they see the destruction of the, of, of the war, and they're trying to come to grips with this. They all wrote various articles about it. John Bai Li came to a, a kind of epiphany because after studying Japan, he had studied in Germany, he had a huge amount of respect for German military, the German military, and he was trying to figure out why did the Germans lose? And he came to the conclusion that it's much more difficult to motivate an army when it's aggressively uh, invading its neighbor. So why did the French win? Because the French were defending their territory. And his biggest concern always about the Chinese was apathy. The Chinese don't care. 
They lose Taiwan, they don't care. They lose Hong Kong, they don't care. They lose Manchuria, they don't care. The Chinese just don't care. What can you do to a country that doesn't care? He said, maybe we've been training them the wrong way, that we should be training, we should train Chinese to defend the homeland, that the homeland is under attack and we can train to defend. He went back and he started meticulously planning the defense of China. If the Japanese come in, they're probably going to take over this railway, and therefore we will do this. They will try to take over Nanjing, if Nanjing's the capital. We'll move Long Nanjing to Luoyang. We'll, lo we'll move Nanjing to Chongqing. We will retreat. We will bring them in. They will have long supply lines. The other thing he realized in his trips to Japan, and this, this surprised me, was the Japanese had fallen very much behind in military technology. He was studying at the Military Academy in 1904 and 1905. This was the Russo-Japanese War. This was when you had massive infantry going in and fighting with bayonets. The thing they find out, found out about World War I is that there's modern artillery, there's, there's armored vehicles. Japan, up until the 1930s, had never manufactured an internal combustion engine. Japan had no automotive industry. It had no ability to manufacture tanks. It had no ability to manufacture. The first invasion of Japan was actually in 1932, an in invasion of Shanghai. And they took in 5,000 horses. And they pulled the artillery manually. And he said, we could do something here. <laughs> we can defend against this kind of a country. Now, the Japanese are very motivated. They're very well trained. But there is a way to defend, defend China. I'll go on. But this, this is just, just an example of the results of what Paula was talking about, of the Chinese coming and learning from Japan, both sides, weaknesses and strengths. Thank you. Uh, well, <clears throat> to, to me, the conclusion that Rick told me that hey, we're trying to squeeze everything in a little time is that Zhang Bali could see that the Japanese army was stronger, that they were going to invade, and the Chinese were not prepared to stop them. But if they had a long, protracted war, that the Chinese could outweigh them and that they would win the war that way. And Zhang Bali was an advisor of Chiang Kai-shek, and that this was before Mao wrote protracted war on protracted war, and became kind of the, the way that they would resist themselves uh, from and beat the Japanese eventually was through weeding them down and wearing them out, and, which is, of course, what they did. Um, my, my colleagues have so much to say that, that we don't have a lot of time. I, I, I would, I'll try to talk briefly about this third period and then uh, throw it open and open to have a little time for questions. <clears throat> the third period, of course, was beginning in 1978. And uh, China and Japan had had difficulty getting closer relationships after World War II. Uh, Dulles and other Americans uh, didn't want them to have too close relations during the Cold War and sort of prevented them from having bigger relations. But once the United States in 19 
1971, uh, began to open up the Japanese move very fast. Uh, and within one year, uh, Tanaka Kakue had normalized relations, and they were on the way to developing a relationship. But uh, it wasn't until the Treaty of Peace and Friendship in 78 that they really began to have close relations. And Deng Xiaoping, in the middle of 78, I think already had ideas that he was going to be leading uh, China and that he wanted to have Japanese support. So in October 78, two months before the famous Third Plenum, he went to Japan and established relations. And he, he rode on the Shinkansen, uh, the fast train. At that time, China had zero fast trains. Now China has about as much fast trains as the rest of the world altogether. Uh, that, I, if I remember correctly, during the Great Leap Forward, uh, China was making about 13 million tons of steel in one year. Uh, the the uh, large Japanese steel plants were making about that much. One plant was making about that much. So when Deng went, went to Japan, not only did he ride on the fast train, but he visited the steel plant, uh, Kimitsu, which was the, fat, the biggest plant at the time, which was the model for Baoshan. Uh, and before long, Baoshan uh, was producing tremendous modern steel. And as you now know, Japan, China produces about as much steel as the rest of the world combined. Uh, in addition to, to visiting a steel plant, he also visited a uh, modern automobile plant that had robots. He visited um, a company that's now having a little bit of trouble, Nissan, uh, which at that time was way ahead in robotics. Uh, and uh, he asked how many uh, autos a person, average person produced a year, and it was something like 94. And he said, well, we do about one a year. <laughs> Uh, so they could learn that. He also visited the person he called the god of modern enterprise, uh, Matsushita Konosuke. And Matsushita, as a young man, had spent some time in China and had a vision of getting uh, modern electronic equipment. This, of course, before the computer and the internet, but it was the days when they were beginning to get uh, simple, simple computers, calculating machines, and television sets. And Matsushita had the vision of getting those all through China. China, and Deng met him, went to Osaka to meet him. Uh, and so uh, within the next 15 years, uh, Japan uh, was doing an awful lot to help uh, China. Uh, a lot of the details of uh, the Chinese aid uh, program were well known in Japan. They're not publicized widely in China. And this is one of the things that's frustrated because frustrating to the Japanese because they gave so much money and so much technical help. I remember in the 80s going around some Guangdong factories that had big signs uh, up there. They were studying uh, a Japanese management system and putting uh, quality control in the factories. And there, there was a and uh, Jetro had programs, whatever the technical specialty that was needed in China, they would send that specialist to China uh, to help pr promote those studies. So they did a tremendous amount uh, during that uh, period in, in China. Uh, and so uh, I think this is the third period, really, when uh, one country was learning a tremendous amount. Uh, the, one thing that I think was not <clears throat> has not been publicized as much as it should be is on the overall advisory organizational level. Um, of course, the Western, you know, they were moving into a market economy. Uh, 
But most market economies were not, uh, did not have government leadership to try to push ahead and modernize. But Japan, as a late developer, had a, a bureaucracy that was trying to modernize and promote modernization in a market economy. And there was a group of Japanese who were invited by Gumu to go to China, uh, headed by Okita Saburo, that uh, went regularly, and I think maybe that group is still meeting. But it was not a widely publicized group. But it, uh, the peop in 1955, when Japan settled on its big modernization program, and they had a lot of really first-class bureaucrats who were thinking ahead. One of my favorites uh, is Shimo Kobe uh, Atsuchi, who was uh, later head of NIRA and so forth, uh, and Oita Saburo. And that, they were in this group that went to China to provide advice every year. And so I think in the overall program of how you get a system, a national system that's working on modernization, but using market economy, that at that top level, as well as all that uh, lower level of technology down to the factory, down to the industrial s sector, uh, Japan played an important role. I was going to talk more uh, about the uh, stage of overtaking because learning courses from the more advanced. And uh, the time when Japan overtook uh, China was World War, uh, was the Sino-Japanese War, 1894-95. The time when China again came back, I, I trace it in my book and I've been thinking more about it, I would say is the period from about 2008 to 2014. And in 2010, the World Bank uh, declared that the Chinese economy was larger than the Japanese. So they were clearly passing at that time. In 2008, Japan did the Olympics and he had the Asian financial crisis. And I think a lot of the Chinese were already beginning to feel that there was a lot of, soon we're gonna be past these guys and we're not gonna have to put up with what we put up before. Uh, and so in 2010, 2012, he has some of the most horrific incidents. And there are a lot of reasons you can give for those incidents. Uh, but I think underneath, there was also a very fundamental thing. China is again resuming its place as the dominant power of Asia. And uh, from the period of 1895, first in warfare, then in teaching and in technology, Japan was at the top of the heap. But now China is at the top of the heap. And I think the new kind of adjustment that Japan and China are trying to reach a recognition of this new fact that China is now again at the top of the heap. And I think, you know, it wasn't just military power. I think in Fukuzawa, when he was talking about Tatsuwa getting out of Asia in 1885, uh, he was saying, look, these guys don't have much to teach us. We can look down on these guys. Uh, I think by 2012, uh, the Japanese are beginning to recognize that there's some pretty smart Chinese and they've learned a lot of technology. They've thought about the international markets and these guys are no longer the backward civilization that they were when we beat them in 1894-95. So I think there is a very fundamental way in which we're now entering a new era when the Chinese are again at the top 
And the two countries hopefully are beginning to come uh, to terms with that. Uh, one cannot expect that that will be, happen quickly. But uh, when the cherry blossoms bloom next year, uh, we expect Xi Jinping to go to Japan. And we hope they will listen to what I tell them about trying to get along with each other. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you all very much. So we've heard about four particular periods in Sino-Japanese relations. First, the seventh to the ninth century when Japan was learning from China. Then the period immediately after the Sino-Japanese War and before Japan's invasion of China when China was learning from Japan. A second period after the Cultural Revolution and the death of Mao, the post-Mao period in China, when again, China was learning from Japan. And then most recently, Ezra mentioned the contemporary period where this relationship seems to be shifting, um, perhaps more similar to what it was 1,500 years ago, when again, uh, Japan perhaps will feel compelled to learn from China. Um, the floor will shortly be open for questions. I just wanted to pose one general question, but I won't ask the um, panelists to answer it now. I think we'll take a number of questions and then come back to you and you can answer whatever is of interest to you and avoid those things that you don't feel like <laughs> responding to. Um, but my question is, uh, both in reading the book and in hearing you talk, um, you talk, of course, about a number of different channels of uh, cultural transmission back and forth between them, some official, some unofficial. So we have official channels of government uh, officials and government-sponsored students who study in the other country. But we also have um, many unofficial channels, uh, Buddhist pilgrims, uh, today uh, hordes of Chinese tourists in Japan, for example, business people, students who are not actually sponsored by their governments. And I just was interested in your reflections on how the official and unofficial transmission differs, um, which you see is the longer term, whether they brought very different kinds of things back uh, to the two countries, um, whether some of them had more um, of a kind of modifying and friendly uh, long-term effect and others less so and so forth. Um, I, um, Anyway, would be interested in thoughts that you may have about that. One thing I think that uh, both China and Japan have assumed is that merchants are too selfish, and the, you can't leave everything to them. They're going to be doing two things too much on their own, and it requires some kind of government supervision. And I think from the period of 600 to 838, there was there, there was a, a surprisingly, I think, good feeling at the top. You know, the the Japanese accepted that they were paying homage to the, and that they uh, followed protocol. And uh, so I think there was a sense that the official provided uh, channels that could control those. When 830, after 838, um, I think one role that, that has been very important are Buddhist monks. Because I think from this period of May 38 up to the time when they really began resuming contacts in the middle 19th century, uh, that the Buddhist monks were more reliable than the merchants. And so sometimes the merchants uh, would attach themselves to monks. 
and uh, they would keep up almost a semi-official role. And I think the role of Buddhism between the two countries has been ex one of the extraordinarily interesting, lasting things that sort of substituted uh, for governments providing that goodwill. Even today in Japan, uh, the Komeito, the Buddhist, uh, a Buddhist Soka party, Sokagakkai, uh, and by the way, the, the uh, um, uh, ambassador from China to Japan the last nine years, Chung mm -hmm. uh when he, most of the Chinese learn all about Japan in Chinese universities, and they do a good job of training in language. But he actually studied at a Japanese university. What university? Soka University, which is the Soka Gakkai's university. So, and uh, even so, even to, and I think a lot of the reasons he had so many good friends in, in Japan and did better than a lot of the other Japanese ambassadors because of that Buddhist connection. So I think that in addition to the official government connection, that in uh, controlling all these rapacious uh, pirates, and you know, a lot of the images in the era I didn't talk about were of Japanese rapacious pi uh, pirates and so forth, and the merchants are entirely too selfish, that in addition to the government playing a role in sort of supervising, controlling that, I think the, the Buddhists, and also in learning, because they were the sages in those early days, and a lot of the Japanese on these early delegations was the Buddhist guy who stayed there, and because before they had you know modern uh, tele equipment and so forth, you copied long texts uh, and brought those texts back to Japan. So the, the, bunk, the, the Buddhist monks, I think, also played an absolute critical role in addition to government and the merchants. And today, the large number of tourists, and many of whom, of course, want to go to Japanese Buddhist temples. Um, and I know very few Chinese who visited Japan who don't have a positive impression. Of I, I was going to say one, one thing about the contrast between those early days when you maybe have several hundred, maybe in those early trips from 600 to 838 AD, you may have had, I don't know, 15, 20,000 uh, Japanese who went to China all together. I don't know what the numbers are. Nobody knows. Uh, now, an average of over 25,000 tourists go a day from China to Japan. Last year, it was over 8 million tourists from China to Japan. And I think that they have been playing a role. I think, of course, now that you have more middle-class Chinese who can afford to travel, they travel. And some of that I've talked to, they see the signs in this Chinese language. Uh, and uh, they feel more comfortable than they do with a lot of other countries. It's, there's a certain familiarity in the culture that if the countries can manage their differences and not squabble over the Senkaku Dao and all the commercial competition and so forth, I think there is a large cultural base that the two sides can use uh, to develop you know, a deeper understanding. And I think a lot of the Japanese who go to Japan to go to China really have a deeper understanding than most of us Westerners. I think uh, they, they, they've, they've dug in more to the local areas, and there are more <laughs> familiar phrases. And as you know, in the 19th century, Josh Fogel has, has talked a lot about this. Some of the early contacts in the 19th century, they communicated by brushstroke, uh, by uh, brush. 
And uh, so even when they didn't have language and didn't have interpreters, the, the scholars in China and Japan, a lot of the, the early uh, contacts when the Chinese began sending a mission to Japan in 1877, uh, a lot of the early contacts between the Chinese and the mission there and local people was through the brush. And they used to have kind of brush parties uh, and exchange uh, views uh, by writing calligraphy because they could understand that way. Yeah. Okay. Yes, Paul? Well, a couple of points. One is the question, I think, of expectations. Many of the Western, of the uh, Japanese advisors who went to China were both Western educated and they also had a classical Chinese education because that was still part of the Meiji school curriculum. So they were well trained in Chinese and it produced different sorts of reactions. In other words, in the case of some people, they expected more, they hoped for more interaction or better coordination of activities and were disappointed because that didn't happen or when that didn't happen. That was true in a number of cases. So people ran into bureaucratic obstacles and so on. Hattori Nokichi was one of those. He was at Tokyo University. He was sent to um, China to try to develop an education, teacher education system. But he often was quite frustrated. He went first, actually, during the Boxer Uprising, and he was most disturbed to find that Japanese were regarded as foreigners, just like everybody else. So the anti, so there, I think that worked both ways, but there was some disappointment, in other words, in the period I've uh, looked at in that fact. The other thing that's interesting, I think, is that the individual experience, and we don't really, I think, know enough about various individuals. For example, there's the story of Zhou Enlai and Matsumoto Kamejiro, his teacher who was devoted to him. And you do read accounts, and it seems that there was a real closeness there. That probably made a real difference in Zhou Enlai's life and um, the, the decisions he made and so on, his view of Japan. I don't think there's any doubt. There's a famous uh, Lu Xun incident where the professor Fujino uh, was talking to him, and so on. That may be apocryphal, but there are no, a number. No, it isn't. You know, yeah, I've yeah. I've seen when I was in Sendai, I visited the school the where Lu Xun, yeah. and there are papers that are written in hand uh, by Fujino on on, on manuscripts right, right. that Lu Xun wrote, and so that's right. It's not apocryphal. I mean, Lu, uh, you know, this Fujino really did, and then of course Lu Xun wrote that, that story about that's Fujino. Right. You know. Exactly. And, and exactly. It's, it, it's real. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the other person who did have a real impact and a, a real passion to develop education for Chinese students was Kano Jigoro, who's known better as a judo expert. He's the one who, who took Japan to the Olympics in 1912. But he was really passionately involved from the beginning in establishing, first of all, a special program for the 13 who went to Japan in 1896. And then after that, really setting up a, an entire school for, for Chinese Chinese students, and I think many of those students likewise regarded him as somebody who was on their side, who really wanted to improve the relationship. So I think the more we know about the individual stories, the more um, subtle a, a picture we'll get of this relationship. Um, there were also a number of Chinese students, I think, who were quite disappointed when they got to Japan, those with the diplomatic mission, particularly, say, in the 1880s, and they didn't understand the street signs. They knew the characters, but it didn't make sense to them. I remember reading that, too. So the comfort level wasn't always <laughs> good. 
No, I think Okay, so um, we probably have a couple of microphones around. Is that right? There's one over there, just one. Okay. Oh, there are two. Um, so what I will do is call on several people, and I will ask you to stand up um, and give your name and just a very brief introduction of where you are, and then to be very disciplined in your question, because we have a lot of questions already I see um, developing here. If you want to direct them specifically to one of the panelists, please do that, or if it's more general. Um, so why don't I start right down here? It's yes, coming. It's, it's coming, coming to you. Okay. Uh, my name is uh, Abba Shmuel, and I'm a teacher. I'm I, I'm sort of absorbing all of this wonderful uh, information, uh, the uh, question that comes to mind. The, the United States is also heavily involved in China and Japan, both in terms of trade and, and cultural exchange. And I'm wondering what um, influences the United States has now and going forward to the relationship between China and Japan. Okay, thank you. So the impact, of the, the potential impact of the US on Sino-Japanese relations. All the way in the back there. It's coming that way to you. Okay, and um, thanks for all the professor for the wonderful and fascinating talk. Um, my name is Ling Chen, I'm assistant professor at Jiangsu University and I'm affiliated with Harvard um, Fairbank Center this year. Um, I want, want to um, ask Professor Vogel a question about whether it's possible to compare um, the influence of Japan um, with the influence of Soviet Union on China's uh, on Northeast China, um, especially um, some of the later um, works and discover that people tend to think, for example, SOE, state-owned enterprises, tend to derive from Soviet Union, but surprisingly, they also find a lot of influence from Japan as well in terms of its um, bureaucratic structure and setting. Um, so um, I, 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 would, I would appreciate your uh, comments on that. Thank you. Okay. Another question right down here. Hello, everyone. My name is Cindy, and I'm from China. Um, I am a prospective student for Harvard Divinity School. And uh, thank you um, for your impressive uh, lecture. My question is about um, yeah, who Japanese want to learn. Because uh, in the ancient time, it seemed that uh, Japanese learned a lot from China in terms of uh, everything, religion, uh, civilization, language, and ex AI culture, and etc. But it seems that in the modern world, uh, which is a uh, uh, Western-led, uh, Western culture-led world, Japanese um, seems, yeah, to be um, a little bit, I would say, very conservative to be very open-minded to learn the Western culture. Um, because um, I would say it seems that uh, Christianity um, and uh, 
yeah, a lot of uh, Western culture um, cannot are not very really prevailing in Japanese society. So uh, my question is, um, yeah, what's the reason behind that? Yeah, they are they were very open-minded to learn in ancient time from China, but uh, they are not that open-minded to learn from the West in the modern society. Mm. Okay, so why Buddhism but not Christianity? Uh, yeah, kind of, thank you. <laughs> okay, um, we could take one more question, I think, uh, maybe two more, and then one right there on the edge, and then, where's the microphone? So one over here, please. Well, all right, we'll just go if you have your hand up there. I did want to go that way, but we're losing. Yeah, it's okay. Sorry. Uh, thank you for your presentation. I'm Satoshi, a first-year student at the college. And from my name, I'm Japanese. And my, I'm, I'm ethnically Chinese, so really interested to hear all of your stories. My question is that, um, so in order for the Sino-Japan relations to be, uh, be go forward, I think the... Uh, attribution of the responsibility of the World War II is a very big issue. So my question is that, um, so what Japan can right now do in terms of policy, in terms of like education, to kind of like uh, kind of settle this like uh, this non-historical tension about the responsibility of the of the of the consequences of the World War II. Okay, um, so I think a final question over here, and then we'll turn back to our panelists. My name is Noriyuki Shikata. Uh, I'm a Japanese diplomat. I was uh, based in Beijing until uh, three weeks ago. Um, my question relates to uh, this, uh, the period uh, that uh, uh, Professor Vogel was talking about, especially as related to the last period, the most modern one, between 1978 and 1992. And uh, my question is, uh, what do you think is uh, the reason why uh, it ended in 1992. And uh, there, there is some reference in your book about uh, uh, the issues of uh, the, the end of the Cold War and uh, uh, the concerns uh, inside the uh, uh, Chinese Communist Party about the impacts uh, on, on the Chinese society. Uh, in the meanwhile, as is referred to in the book, there's reference to Japanese diplomatic uh, engagement in terms of uh, trying to lift sanctions, Western sanctions against China, uh, and also preparation for uh, Japanese emperor's visit to China at that time. So it was 1990 to 1992. So what do you think were the major reasons uh, which may be originating from the Chinese uh, societal or governmental backgrounds uh, that kind of finished uh, that period and, and that into this uh, patriotic education and so forth. Okay, thank you all very much. So I think I'm first Mary, gonna... Can I jump in on all those? Of course, but I was, I, uh, you can answer whatever you want, Esra, but, um, but I thought I would give you the last words, so maybe letting your colleagues first jump in, and then... I think you want to, think you want to jump in, and we will go, right, go, right, go right ahead, yes, Ezra. And we'll just go right ahead if we have anything to say. 
They're all great questions, and I could go on for all the rest of the time on any one of those. But the role of the United States, I think that, um, you know, and this also answers Shikata's uh, question of what happened in 92. I think that after 18, uh, after the Tiananmen incident, Deng felt we needed patriotic education, and there was patriotic education. And there was, uh, it wasn't particularly uh, anti-Japanese when it started in the early 90s. Uh, it started by 1992. But then I, I think people found that what was most effective in patriotic education was the anti-Japanese because there were so many vivid memories of World War II and so many people who hated the Japanese and the Japanese had done so many horrible things that people knew about that in the 1990s, I think the anti-Japanese mood uh, took off uh, because of that. And um, so I think that the anti-Japanese mood Say if you're a leader and worried about the loyalty of your people under and whether they're going to be unified, having an anti-foreign, anti-Japanese feeling is not such a horrible thing. It's not the worst thing in the world. Uh, now, of course, what's happened is the U.S.-Japan, uh, the U.S.-China relationship is so bad that, in a sense, we're taking the place of Japan. And uh, I think, for if you were a Chinese uh, patriot now and you wanted to stir up patriotism, uh, you could talk about you know some of the things the United States is doing, and you don't need Japan quite as much. So I think, and you can show movies of the Korean War instead of, the, and that's what's going on. That, that is what's going on, and so. So they're finding, you know, for a patriotic education in China now, uh, it's more turned to the United States, and that, in a way, relieves Japan. Uh, you know, the there's so many questions now how Japan is going to uh, survive in this very complicated new era. My own thinking is that China is bigger and stronger militarily and has 10 times as many people, and Japan can never have enough people to match that. And I think they will therefore keep the security relationship with the United States. They will try to find the thing that would, you know, cause the Chinese not to want to attack them uh, and have preparation for that. But that, I think that the alliance with the United States will stay there. But in, in the trade war now, a lot of the products that China has trouble getting in the United States without big tariffs have Japanese components. So if you're a Japanese uh, manufacture in China, uh, you have a lot of goods now that are in Chinese products. So your identity is with the Chinese because you have your products are being taxed by the United States. So I, I think that you know many Japanese intellectuals have wanted to play a go-between between the United States and China, and we've had so many direct contacts, and we think we were so important that Japan really hasn't played that role. But I think that there is a little bit you know, of a role now that may be emerging where Japan could begin to do some things to sort of uh, work with China and work with the United States. I think that they are, they're not going to be as anti-Chinese as we are at this stage unless something really big happens. Uh, on the question of uh, learning from uh, Russia and learning from uh, Japan, <clears throat> 
One of the interesting things is, of course, in the Manchurian era, uh, period after 1949, because a lot of the factories in Manchuria, of course, had been built by the Japanese. I mean, they were built by the Japanese, overwhelmingly. And those factories then became uh, the basis for Russian industry. It, it came in large, in the first five-year plan, it was very heavily in the Northeast. And a lot of those factories, and a lot of the big race after 1945 was who's going to take over those factories and the implements and the technology uh, that were left in the Northeast by the Japanese? Was it going to be the communists, the nationalists, uh, or you know the Russians who carried a lot of that stuff back there? But I, I think that uh, in the, by the 1960s and 70s, the uh, after the J Chinese felt so upset at the Russian advice that it wasn't, you know, as I look back, you know, uh, and you know, I visited. China China fairly early in the 70s, I can see a lot of Russian things that were not bad, you know, that, that really helped the Chinese. But I think the overall evaluation by the 1970s is that was a terrible thing. The Russians were all awful. And I think that for a lot of those people who wanted the market economy and the more modern, uh, higher technology, uh, that Japan uh, seemed far superior to the Soviet Union uh, in the technology by the 70s and 80s. Uh, when they really began learning from uh, Japan. Um, and the question of um, whether, uh, why Japan has not learned from the West the way they learned from China, I disagree with that one. I was in uh, Japan uh, in the 1950s and 1960s, and they Everybody was learning from the United States. Everything, you know, all ages, all, uh, everybody wanted to get the latest way of doing things in the United States. So they, uh, as Liz says, they didn't uh, adopt Christianity in a big way. But I think American way of life, technology, uh, markets, uh, uh, television, and so forth, was very heavily influenced. Uh, and the, the question of 1992, what happened? Uh, I think it, you know one of the very well th that year was really a year that was more interesting than I think not not enough historians have given the fact that you know one time the Japanese emperor visited China in the whole history of these two, 1500 years 1992 and that was the year and that that visit went very well you know the World War II the emperor during World War II of course would never be welcome because so closely associated with the but by the time you have a new emperor come in after uh, then by 1992 a new emperor had come in and that was the first time it could be done and for the Chinese who uh, were trying to have closer interaction with other countries and knew the Japanese guilt over what they had done in World War II and desire to establish relations, that Japan was more willing to have close contacts uh, than many countries of the world. It was a useful ploy on the part of Chinese leadership to be more part of the international community was to get the emperor to visit, and the visit did go very well, and it, it, I think it got lost in history because the relationships uh, became worse again not long thereafter, uh, but it was a very important milestone 
and uh, really a very help, very helpful thing. And as I say, I, th I think the, the key, the, there were a lot of things that happened in the 90s that made that initial period. I mean, the Japanese aid did not stop, but the reason I use that periodization is because it was so heavy and so critical in that early period uh, from uh, 1978 to 92. And, and after that, the, the uh, anti-Japanese moods became much more uh, pronounced. And so that's why I use that periodization. Thank you. Paul, you want to Oh, just one point on learning from the West. This was really the hallmark of the Meiji period, using Western models. And it's kind of interesting because it's usually characterized as uh, students going to Japan and uh, Japan acting as a channel for Western knowledge. But I think it, it varied tremendously. There were a lot of uh, young people who realized that what they should learn, and they were told this by, by their Japanese mentors in many cases, was uh, open-mindedness. In other words, don't do as we did necessarily, but that imitation always involves in innovation, to use the title of Eleanor Westney's wonderful book. And that what people were impressed with, many of the Chinese, was the fact that Japanese had managed to experiment with a number of different models and come out with, a, with an Asian Western model, say in education and many other fields. I think that's one point that's um, very important to remember. It's too easy. There were perceptions uh, on the part of some Chinese that, um, well, they could surpass Japan very easily. And it was just a question of picking up some knowledge. There was that attitude, too. But I think more subtly, many realized that these innovations, particularly in the school system, were after a period of, of, um, of uh, experimentation on various models. Um, you didn't talk about the question of the history problem and how to overcome it. Well, I have a good suggestion. Okay. Your book should be mandatory <laughs> reading our in the book, schools. Yes. <laughs> it's going to be translated into Japanese, right? Yes. Very it's, it's, Nikkei is coming out very shortly. Yeah. The Chinese yeah. version is coming out in the Hong Kong with the Chinese University right. Press, we don't know what mainland is going to do. Yes. Uh, and uh, they will have to, their censors will have to examine and decide what portions are uh, worthy of publication. Mm -hmm. So we don't know that yet, but it will be in Chinese and those who want to read it in Chinese will find it from the Chinese University Press. <laughs> Rick, did you want to? Yeah. Uh, I might have a slightly different perspective. I'm, I'm on the board of Hitachi Chemicals, which is a, a large Japanese company. By, by the way, uh, our footprint in China is bigger than our footprint in Japan. We have our more employees Hitachi, in China. Our, our Hitachi. What? Our meaning Hitachi. That's, that's yeah, right. Yeah, you're talking about that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you say our, I mean, you Well, it's a global company. <laughs> I'm a director. <laughs> and, and uh, so in one way, the Japanese business community is sort of uh, rooting for Lighthouse and what's happening in Washington, because it is true that, for example, the Japanese automobile uh, investment and automobile-related investment in China is huge. But the automobile companies all had to do joint ventures. They couldn't go in 100%. If they could go in 100%, it would be, would be much easier. But in general, I think, and I go to China almost once a month visiting various, in general, I think that whatever the problems are between China and Japan, that on the corporate level, 
uh, where local governments are so important that we are treated fairly. Uh, and it, it hasn't always been true, but I think uh, we are not necessarily discriminating against- You mean against Japanese companies? Japanese companies, <laughs> I'm talking about Hitachi. <laughs> if I were an Indian here talking about Microsoft, would you be confused? <laughs> so why can't an American talk about Hitachi? <laughs> I just want to make it absolutely clear. Well, I, I will say one place where it sort of, we, we have a large factory in, in Mushi, in Mushaku. And I was visiting there last year with uh, three of my Japanese colleagues. I was there, and our uh, Chinese uh, manager of the factory was there, who happened to be a Chinese lady. And she said, after dinner, let's go out for foot massage. And so we all go out, and we're, we're on these chase lounge. We're getting our foot massages. So there, there's the Chinese lady. There are the three Japanese. There's me. There's a big LCD screen in front of us, and guess what they were showing? Showing. They were showing a, one of those Japanese dramas, the invasion of, of, of the aggressive invasion by China. And we're sitting there, and everybody's shutting up. I couldn't do it. I, could, I asked, would you please change the channel? <laughs> you know. uh, it, it, so now they're going to be Korean invasion, and yeah, maybe Japanese will get off the hook. But they were so pervasive. But I, I will say... For our foreign operations, one thing you have to think about in Japan is uh, there's another like 60% of the Japanese economy that's not in the Japanese archipelago, and you can go to the you can go to the uh, the uh, Bank of Japan website and you get a, a chart that shows repatriation of profits and dividends for overseas, and that will give you some idea of the Japanese footprint outside of Japan. It's huge, so if you go to Indonesia, if you go to Hanoi, if you go, it, it usually in the industrial parks, they're mainly Japanese companies. Very few. Chinese companies are yet manufacturing overseas, except for some white good companies. But one thing for our subsidiaries in China, a surprising number of our staff have studied at Japanese universities and we can hold uh, meetings in Japanese in China. That's not true in Malaysia, it's not true in Indonesia. In Thailand, the Japanese presence is huge, but generally uh, meetings are held in English. It's difficult to hold. So, you know, the presence in China is big. I, it used to be that when when, uh, what was it, Jap the American economy sneezes and Japanese catch a cold. But I noticed yesterday there was a pessimistic report about the China economy that came out and the Nikkei Dao went down today. And the companies that went down were like Shiseido and so forth that depend on the Chinese market. So the, that relationship now is almost like the relationship that between China and, and uh, between the US and Japan, say in the 1980s. Just China is so overwhelmingly important. So we all have to keep healthy economies. <laughs> so thank you all very much for your attention. We've had, uh, I think, very stimulating presentations. There were lots of questions that I wasn't able to get to. So again, you are all warmly invited to join the speakers just outside in the concourse here uh, for a reception. Please uh, join me in thanking the panelists. <laughs>